Welcome to the David Ross Show and episode two of our CoronaCast, where we continue to look at the COVID-19 pandemic from a variety of angles, how it affects people personally, professionally, economically, and of course, the public health aspects. If you like what you hear, give us a shout out, maybe give us a like or a share, or subscribe to the podcast. Okay, I'm here with uh, Representative Jim Walsh of Washington State. And um, Representative Walsh, can you tell us, uh, for people who may not be in where I am here in Washington, um, about the uh, community and the district that you serve? Sure, sure did. Um, I represent the 19th district in Washington State, and that is literally the southwest corner of the state. So it, uh, it starts out along the Pacific Coast, um, and then the towns of Aberdeen and Westport, and then runs south from, from Aberdeen and Westport uh, to the Long Beach, Washington Peninsula, which is a, a big uh, center of uh, the oyster farming industry and, and other uh, related uh, aquaculture. And then in along uh, the mouth of the Columbia River, uh, past uh, the Great Bridge that crosses from near Ilwaka, Washington, over to Astoria, Oregon. And then in along the, the river, uh, as far uh, past Kathlamet, uh, a famous uh, a ferry spot uh, crossing the river, and then on into Longview and Kelso. Uh, and so it's it really is the southwest corner of the state of Washington. And uh, demographically, uh, well, first, sort of numerically, how many people is, uh, would you, is that district? Uh, all of the districts in Washington in terms of population, are designed to be approximately the same. Uh, Each of us represents something like 180,000 people. Uh, And uh, so that way it's it's typical. It's a little on the small side just because of the coming and going uh, in terms of people. In terms of land mass, it's one of the larger ones. Uh, And uh, it it includes uh, 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 parts of five counties, uh, and and some, the complete part of the county, some just sections of the counties. So I have parts of Grays Harbor County, all of Pacific County, all of Waukiacum County, and then parts of Cowlitz County, that's where Longview and Kelso are, and part of Lewis County. And uh, it's a, demographically, it's it's a, what they call a blue-collar district. Uh, we, we are uh, heavily uh, based economically on... Uh, uh, agriculture and aquaculture, as I mentioned, oyster farming is a big deal. Um, we all are, are natural resource dependent. We're a, a, a traditionally a, a logging and and uh, timber district, and uh, and our ports are a big part of what we do. We have uh, we have I, have I have seven port districts in my in my legislative district, and. Uh, each of them kind of does their own thing, but but the two largest, which are the ports of Longview and the port of Grays Harbor, uh, are our major uh, import-export ports, uh, and uh, and so that's a big part of what we do. So we're we're very uh, we're we're a work-focused district. We are we're blue-collar. We're uh, a lot of people work with their hands. They work outside, and uh, and they like it. It's a beautiful part of the world. Uh, then people don't think of the coast of Washington a whole lot. They uh, they tend to think when they think of Washington State of 
Seattle, which is inland on the Puget Sound, of course, and they tend to think of uh, kind of I-5 and I-90. We are off the beaten track in that way. We've, we've got a little bit of I-5 uh, around the Longview area, but, uh, but mostly we are, we are off the, uh, the major thoroughfares. So every, what, every 10 years we count population, we, we select our districts or we expand or contract, and yours is um, you know, a chunk of the state as opposed to maybe being geographically the same size as a little, I want to say a little speck, but a, right. a small area in, in, say, the Seattle area. That means people live a lot further apart. Correct. That's and correct. Here we are in in the what was ground zero for the COVID nineteen uh, coronavirus outbreak, um, and and we are hopefully chronologically at least smack dab in the middle of the time, maybe even past the midpoint. Um, how is that looking? How is that going in your neck of the woods? Well, we've been we've been uh, we've done well uh, as much as you can do well in these times. Uh, we have. Uh, at latest count, we still had zero deaths in my district from COVID. Uh, and that may be changing. Uh, we may have one or two, but uh, but we've had very few in in any regard. Uh, and even the number of positive cases have been relatively few in my area. I think we can count uh, well under 100, uh, and that's cases uh, confirmed positive. So we have not suffered from the outbreak the way that some areas have. And uh, that's been a great thing. It's been great for the people of my district. Uh, but also it uh, is causing the people of my district to be a, a little uh, impatient. <laughs> they feel that, that our part of the state, for reasons of uh, geography and reasons of just kind of the people we are, uh, hasn't been affected that negatively by this uh, this outbreak, and a lot of the people in my area want to get back to work, and they are kind of, uh, uh, you know, pulling at the leash or chomping at the bit. They want to they want to get back to what they like to do, and uh, and that that goes for people who work for companies. That also goes for people who run their own uh, businesses. They really want to get back to work, and and that's been the main. Uh, thrust of of communications I hear from my constituents is we appreciate that this is an outbreak. We appreciate that this is a health risk, even to those of us who live in the rural parts of the state. But we think it's a manageable risk for where we are and where we live and what we do, and we want to get back to our lives. And I've been trying to find ways to articulate that in the political back and forth in the state uh, that are effective. And uh, yeah, I think we've had some success. What is your response to constituents who voice that to you, people who are concerned about both the economics and, and the public health? Uh, that it's that basically I agree with them, that they're right, that we have focused on the health issues and managing the outbreak uh, to the detriment of the economic impacts of what our, our reactions will do. And, uh, and that what I'm looking for and what I'm encouraging the governor to do and the governor's office is to restore some of that balance, to bring it back to a place where we are mindful of the uh, health requirements of, of, of slowing the, the spread of this virus and the disease connected with it. Uh, but we are, we, we show common sense and we are willing to balance that interest with the interest of life as normal, which includes uh, 
business and commerce being open. So if you look at that from the national stage with the, the president and, and uh, daily briefings, you look at New York and uh, Governor Cuomo daily briefings, uh, Gavin Newsom in, in California daily briefings, and in our state, typically uh, Governor Inslee more often about weekly briefings. He's gotten so. a little busier. He's about every other third day at this point. So he's, I think he's trying to, to communicate better. Sure. But it gets distilled down to uh, profits versus people. That seems right. to be the, if you look on social media, you see the same, I always typify it as the old Dr. Seuss book where I read to my little boy, or read, used to read to my little boy, the star-bellied sneeches versus <laughs> the plain-bellied sneeches. It's the same sort of social fabric breakdown, red state, blue state, whatever you want to call it, um, that, that, that to even open this discussion is, is sort of a, a shameful, uh, selfish uh, uh, endeavor. What, what's, what's your perspective on that? Well, that's silly. Um, good public policy is always about balancing interests, always. And here we have a, just a, a hotter case of that. We need to balance these interests. And the, it, it's a false choice and one that some partisans are making, that you can't both manage the, the viral outbreak and live a somewhat normal life. It, that's a false choice. You don't have to choose between the two of them. You can do both. And uh, one of the important things that I've tried to bring, and, and the, uh, the governor's office has been, I don't know if they've been responsive, but they've at least listened is that uh, is that the, you know they may be hearing from partisans, and they may be hearing from their core constituency, which is frankly in the densely populated urban part of the state, uh, but that there is another perspective on this, and and that they should not give in to false choices, and they should not give in to uh, people who are always looking for a crisis that they don't want to let go to waste. And that the, that the governor can represent all of the people in the state by understanding that uh, a one-size-fits-all approach to public policy in managing the COVID outbreak is probably not the best way to go. That we, uh, we have different regions in the state, and the different regions need to have a little more autonomy in how they uh, apply the broad... Uh, guidelines and the broad policy points that the governor articulates. And it, it's sort of what's going on with the feds uh, dealing with states. I think it should be similar to how the states deal with local jurisdictions. In my opinion, counties are the best mechanism. Um, the, the, the feds and the state authorities should be issuing good, reliable, fact and science-based policy uh, guidelines, suggestions. Uh, and they ought to assist the local decision makers, most often county commissioners, uh, but in some cases uh, city uh, structure may be appropriate, a city mayor and a city council, in making decisions and really implementing the guidelines and implementing policy in the way that's locally appropriate. And... Uh, the governor has not always been there in the right spot on that that balance, in my opinion. But at least they're listening, and I think uh, I think as time goes forward, we may see some improvement in allowing local authorities to make locally appropriate uh, decisions about how to apply good science and uh, and good policy 
to, to managing the, the COVID outbreak. So we, we have some people nationally and we have some people regionally, uh, as you said earlier, um, probably best described as impatient to the extent that we have uh, states like Georgia kind of opening wide open and the Petri dish to see what's going to happen there or locally having recently a massive protest on the steps of our state capitol. Um, when people voice those types of, and, and it gets a little bit, well, not a little bit, it gets a lot fringy of this is all a big conspiracy and there's no real virus and it's it's all 5G cellular and on and on and on down the rabbit hole. But, but I, my point that I'm curious about your response to is when people voice any just questioning as you're describing, um, we've sort of gravitated toward a, a shaming and and a, a, a cajoling that 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 you're you don't care about science you don't understand science um, how, it, it's almost an indefensible perspective in the pop cultural landscape do you, do you know what I mean oh sure sure and I mean I've been dealing with that quite a bit um, as someone who has raised questions about the uh, both federal and particularly state, states more my bailiwick, uh, policies and responses, I've been getting it in the teeth from people who say just that, that it's selfish, that it's arrogant, that it's science denying. And, and it's that stuff is just a joke. It's farcical. Um, one of the critical uh, documents that supported a lot of what we've done in terms of response to the COVID outbreak was a report by the Royal Academy of Medicine in the UK, in, in Britain. And uh, it, you'll hear it referred to sometimes as the Ferguson Report. It was not related to our Attorney General Ferguson. It was uh, related to a, a British doctor, uh, Neil Ferguson. And uh, he, he wrote this paper, but was not alone. There were about a, a dozen or more co-authors. So it was a, it was a scientific paper issued... Uh, well, it was circulated starting in the early part of the year. It was formally published in uh, in June. Or, I'm sorry, uh, in March. In March, uh, but it projected through June and July. So it 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 set that that bell curve that you've probably seen in media reports uh, about the uh, transmission or incident rate of of COVID, as well as the mortality rate uh, deaths caused by COVID, um, and uh, it uh, it basically the the methodology that the British uh, academics uh, used was sound based on historical epidemiological studies, particularly the the famous Farr's Law, which is one of the original uh, building blocks of how we understand epidemiology. Uh, uh, a scientist from the late eighteen uh, hundreds. Uh, looking at smallpox outbreaks, uh, charted that initial bell curve of how uh, a disease vectors through a population. So uh, the the recent uh, Brits, they, they used Farr's Law and other uh, very legitimate methodology, but they made some faulty assumptions about basically starting points about how deadly this COVID virus was going to be. Uh, and how transmissible, transmittable it would it would be, and uh, they they based that those assumptions on some information that came out of Wuhan, China, where the virus first uh, took major effect, but they also based it on just on some kind of 
seat of the pants estimates that really they shouldn't have done. They should have used better uh, assumptions. So they put the uh, they put these faulty assumptions into an analysis. The, the the formulas of their analysis were actually fairly solid, but when you put bad information in, you get bad information out. And uh, this report is the one that projected 2,200,000 deaths in the United States from COVID. And early on, that was a number a lot of us heard, and that, that this was pushed through the media very aggressively. And uh, and some of their narrative, their their you know their their wording around the 2.2 million estimate said that it would could be even higher than 2.2 million. Well, now we know that you know the projections, which have been based on better assumptions, and now some real data show that the estimated mortality on this is much much lower than that, and, and frankly, uh, several orders of magnitude lower. Now, which isn't to say that it's not a, uh, there's no mortality risk. There is some mortality risk, but it is a fraction of what that first estimate said. However, we've got people in policymaking positions all around the country who are still using basically the assumptions of that first report in that document uh, uh, to, in my opinion, promote policy that is not responsible. And importantly, this is the most important thing, not science-based. I mean, it was a faulty scientific study, and there have been other studies since which have looked at just how, why, mechanically how and why they were faulty. And uh, so the peer review process has called attention to the problems in that first modeling. Uh, and, uh, but, but some people in politics and in, uh, in public health circles aren't acknowledging that and their certainly their rhetoric and in some cases their actual policy points are based on faulty assumptions and that's bad and and probably the I'm a politician the part that gets me the worst politically of this are these people who insist that what they're promoting is science based and then point to a demonstrably faulty scientific paper as their science base. Well, there's such a thing as bad science. And the, the truth is that the scientific method, which of course I trust and I believe people should, is there to sort out the bad science. And, you know, the peer review process is one in which people look at a study, you know, try to reproduce its conclusions, and in the process of reproducing its conclusions, find if it worked or it didn't work and find out what the problems were. And that's exactly what's happening with this British report that kind of got the ball rolling on a lot of public policy fronts. And, uh, you know, I believe in science and the science of COVID and the epidemiology of this outbreak point to the early estimates being wrong and, and exaggerating the mortality of the, of the virus. So there's a lot in between, but I want to jump to right now today. If you had a political magic wand, what would you will into being as far as as uh, how we respond to this politically, policy-wise, and and how we progress toward what they call the reopening? Right, right. Um, a great question. The the, the key question. Um, I think that we don't need a magic wand. I think that our governor could make better policy right now. 
And, and certainly he's identified next week, particularly May 4th, as kind of a critical uh, point. It's the point at which he needs to expand, extend uh, several of his current proclamations. And on May 4th, the governor could refine our response in the state of Washington and make it much more effective. He could say, all right, we've reached the point, we, we set out to, to flatten the curve to affect how that bell curve of FAR's law will, uh, will work in this case, in this outbreak. And we've done that, which is true, we have. Um, now we're at a point where I think we need a more subtle, a more nimble, a more locally appropriate response. So I'm going to change my method. I'm not going to give proclamations that have the power of law. I'm going to try not to. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to issue guidelines for healthy interactions, for managing the viral outbreak, and I'm going to leave it to local authorities, counties, and cities to make policy. And they can make the policies that they find appropriate as long as they're consistent with the broad guidelines that the state is going to offer. And let each county do as its local electeds believe is best for that county, or in the case of larger cities, a, a city, and, and let them make the policy. The, the governor could do that on Monday, May 4th. And I think that would give the state a, a more nimble, a, a more, a, the old saying, this policy should be a scalpel, not a sledgehammer. It should be narrowly focused to what's going on in specific places. And, um, you know, we have some examples of how that's worked already in the state of Washington. Uh, early on, uh, before the governor had even made a number of his most uh, uh, draconian proclamations, we had some counties uh, on their own closing access, particularly in my area, to beaches. People were coming out to uh, the coast to go to the beach, and uh, and a, a couple of the local counties and one of the local cities uh, was concerned that they were going to be overwhelmed with people from other places coming to go to the beach and and places where the incident rates for for uh, COVID were much higher and potentially bringing uh, uh, the bug with them. Um, they closed their access points to the beaches. And they did that without any instruction from the governor. At that point, it even was running kind of against what at that point the governor was indicating in terms of policy. And, uh, and they, that was appropriate, in my opinion. That was a local response to a concern. It was within the, the uh, jurisdictional authority of the mayor of a city and the county commissioners of the county to close the roads that in each case they control that access points out to the beach and effectively closing the beach, even though the state is in charge of the beach for, for legal purposes, it's a park. Um, uh, but they control the, the, the roads that get you out to the beach and they close those roads down. And that was entirely appropriate in my opinion. So, uh, I'd like to see more of that and less of these proclamations from the governor that are one-size-fits-all policy to a state that is very diverse in what it is, very diverse in how its population is spread around, very diverse in how its transit systems work, very, very diverse state. And I think that the governor 
should pay more respect to the diversity uh, of uh, lifestyle and of population that Washington has. So in, in, in line with that about the beaches and about other sort of outdoor recreation, the original declaration on the part of the governor included uh, outdoor exercise uh, is important. And as long as you social distance, that, that's fine. Uh, but one point of controversy that's right on the, I think is going to change here on May 5th is uh, let's close all of the city parks, county parks at the local level, and let's close the state parks and state forests at the state level, uh, which to a lot of criticism is that that's going to drive how many more people to go uh, recreationally shop at Costco or, or Home Depot, uh, nothing against them, but 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 literally in, true yeah. in, in these closed quarters because there's nothing else to do and people are going stir crazy. Um, where do you think we draw the line in those regards as far as uh, you know recreation? I understand your point about not uh, flooding a beach town with ten thousand people right from ground zero in Kirkland, but at the same time. Uh, you know, and this is kind of in my wheelhouse working in fitness and wellness. Um, the best the best thing you can do is get exercise and have a healthy, strong heart and cardiorespiratory system. The worst thing you can do is be sedentary and obese. We're getting reports, studies coming out every week about the, the low-grade inflammatory processes that feed right into the this, what's called the severe respiratory distress syndrome that Correct. people end up dying with because of the the, it, it's a whole domino effect that leads to internal organ failure. But people think it's pneumonia, but all the, all the research is you actually die from um, the, the cytokine storm of your body, basically your immune system attacking itself, and it, it, there's no way to treat it. So uh, I, I've been on a, on a soapbox about, <laughs> my gosh, the last thing we want to do is encourage people to stay home, stay safe, and do your part to stimulate the economy by ordering takeout. <laughs> That's been the real, you know, two-pronged message that I've heard. So, so what's your take on get out, get exercise, use public spaces? Absolutely essential. And, and again, this is where the sledgehammer of policy just missed entirely. You know what? Uh, I absolutely agree. I mean, and, and health, physical health isn't just physical health. It's also mental health. And and uh, the policies that our governor has put forward, uh, he even has admitted it. Frankly, they're they're not they're not good for that. They're not good for keeping people healthy. They're not good for giving people the the mental health and the feeling of mental balance they have when they're physically healthy. Um, and and we're you're right. We're seeing all kinds of bad numbers uh, already spiking. Uh, uh, as was a concern voiced early on, the number of domestic violence calls law enforcement is getting are increasing. And people, you know, they, they kind of dismiss that as, oh, well, people are just stuck together in their house and they're arguing more. Well, no, it's more than that. Um, uh, so the governor's approach really, it, it was not appropriate. It was not that, that I use the word nimble or, or, or you could use the word targeted. It hasn't been narrow enough in its policy prescriptions and what it bans and what it allows. And, and that was inevitable. It's the, uh, you know, it's the fatal conceit uh, that policymakers always think that they know what's best and can anticipate things, and they can't anticipate things. Um, so uh, uh, now the governor is walking back some of these bans. Uh, as recently as a, a, a couple of days ago from when we're speaking, it may be a little bit longer ago, but 
people listen to this, uh, the governor has started to relax some of the restrictions on accessing public lands. And that will take effect, as you mentioned, primarily around the 5th of May. And we may see it even opening up a little more between than the few days between now and then. So I'm optimistic that this is a point where uh, the governor has listened to the people and, and is backtracking from his earlier ban. Um, and, and while I have been critical of the governor, I will say that in speaking with his staff, as I mentioned before, they don't, they're not always as immediately responsive as we'd like, but I think they are listening. And I think they know, in fact, I know they know, that they, they just overreached, they overstepped in the early goings of their policy pronouncements. And I'm hoping that on the 4th leading into the 5th of May, this, this sort of inflection point for the governor and his policy, we're going to see more than just a limited number of openings of public space. I think I, I hope we're going to see a statement from the governor that encourages people to, to do more, to get out, to get outside, to, to recreate, to walk to run, to work out, and 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 get healthy. Because as you mentioned, uh, I mean, health is health is not just a defensive game. You know, you've got to have the ball and be on offense to be healthy. Some too, and and the approach that the governor has advocated so far has been a very defensive crouch in terms of uh, encouraging public health. Sure, and uh, I I'm a little bit curious about um, the idea of. Uh, in Washington, our governor has spoken about it's not going to be a, a switch. It's going to be a dial, which is, you know, progressive, whether you call it phases, whether you call it the, the national uh, president's plan or, or local plan. It, it, it's not as um, important to me about the nuances of that as it is um, this idea of a new normal. Now, there's some of us that look at it and say, well, um, you know, after 9-11, we came into a new normal that lasted depending on what you're talking about anywhere from two months to you know a year and then life got pretty much you know travel in in airports is a little bit different now but pretty much life went back to a new normal never really quite uh stuck with us and you know if we if we get a cure we get treatments we get antivirals we get a a a vaccine eventually um or or who knows what this is going to do in the in coming months and weather, um, I'm a little bit more concerned about the, not the new normal of social distancing and industries like mine, which, you know, health clubs and fitness clubs may not exist in their previous incarnation. But um, to get to the fruit of my question, I'm a little bit more curious and concerned about the long-term impacts of this social fabric in one more way, being kind of frayed between, um, you know, like I said earlier, the star-bellied sneeches and the plain-bellied sneeches. I, I don't usually read USA Today, but I read a great essay in the USA Today that, that basically pointed out the cultural divide between the people who are getting paid and are doing fine during this public health crisis and the people who are getting crushed, are going bankrupt, or simply don't have money at all. Um, and that, th- that that chasm seems to define how patient and scientific and so on you are about this versus how impatient and uh, uh, screaming for your liberties that this is. Uh, you're right on the money. That was a great essay. It's a good thing that uh, I believe that was a Glenn Reynolds essay, and he's he's the shining light at USA Today. I don't even know how he ended up there, but he's a, he's a law professor. I think it's at the University of Tennessee, uh, and he is a, 
he's a, a unique voice in the media. And, and he has made that, if, if that was not the same essay you're talking about, he's written similar. Uh, and uh, it's very, very true. Um, you know, policymakers, politicians exist in an echo chamber. And frankly, the higher up you go in the political hierarchy, the more isolated you tend to become from the real world. And our governor, and, and I, this is no news, it's not new with the COVID outbreak, is particularly isolated. He's a, a man of his party, very partisan governor. He is a man of his core constituents who are by and large government employees. And he, they, his own advisors call it an ivory tower that they, they live in. I'm not sure I would call it that. But it is certainly a, a, an echo chamber. And it, one of the things that was striking to me about the governor's staff is when they made an early proclamation in this COVID response to close uh, restaurants and bars, they genuinely thought that restaurants and bars were going to just keep their employees on the payroll uh, while we waited. And they, it, it struck them, uh, they were genuinely shocked when almost immediately these businesses laid off their employees. They couldn't afford to keep employees on payroll when they were closed by governor's order. And, and this, is, this is the thing that, that this governor and, and others like him, they have no sense that if you order a restaurant closed, well, the restaurant proprietor is going to lay off the employees because there's no cash flow. There are no tips. Um, you know, and, and it, it, as uh, one restaurant uh, owner here in the state said, it's actually the kind thing to do is lay them off immediately so that the workers can get on to unemployment quickly ahead of the, the others who are going to be laid off uh, more slowly. And, uh, and it's sort of a counterintuitive argument, but, but I saw his point is he was doing his employees a favor by, by getting them to the front of the line on, at the uh, Employment Security Department, ESD in the state, we call it. That's where the unemployment benefits are. Uh, it, it turned out he was right. I mean, he got his people in there before, uh, encouraged them to go before the, the big wave came and, and that department of the state government was overwhelmed and uh, you know, they're doing the best they can, but they've been uh, responding slowly to people applying for unemployment benefits. My real point here is the policymakers, in this case the governor, they've got no clue. They don't understand how the real world works. And that's a bad thing. And, and to the point of the essay you brought up and others I've read, we have to do something to, to remind policymakers that you can't order an industry to close down and expect that they will simply keep employees on, on the payroll. Um, it, it's another mistake that, that politicians and policymakers of the left make, that business exists to provide people jobs. Now, businesses love to provide people jobs, but that isn't the reason a business exists. A business exists to provide a good or a service to people who want that good or service. And if you are banned from providing the good or service, you're not going to keep employees around. You're not going to keep the lights on. You're going to shut down. And, and it's just a, a, 
a naivete, I would even say it's an ignorance that policymakers don't get that. Because in their world, to a shocking degree, government agencies exist to provide jobs to people. They're jobs programs. And and that's not right. That's not why government agencies should exist. Government agencies should exist much as businesses exist to provide a service to people. Well, I, I think one thing that I have noticed, particularly to our region, is that we had in that regard kind of a perfect storm because exactly where the the virus really in in the U.S. Uh, took off uh, and exploded around the Seattle area is also um, a very wealthy and a very high-tech rich area. So those areas where people are the most impacted by the coronavirus have the most you know fear and concern and rightly so about the coronavirus have the highest numbers and fatalities and so on, um, also have the ability to absorb uh, economic impact probably higher than any other region of our state and have probably the highest ability to telecommute and still keep their earnings and, you know, and basically keep their job function. So when you have all of that coalesce in the highest population density in our state, it kind of makes for a perfect storm where people just don't, uh, I would say, maybe relate to your average constituent in your more rural uh, district. Would that, would that- Absolutely true. Absolutely true. Uh, and, you know, I think even the, the tech industry is beginning to see that this isn't what they thought and that our public policy response to COVID is going to end up coming back against them to some degree. But you're right. Um, when you're working in code, when you're working in marketing of code, uh, it's easier to do it from home. You know, my constituents who who make things and grow things and ship things, they can't really do their work from home. And uh, uh, But we need the economy where people actually make things and grow things and ship things. That's the real economy. And, and the, the high-tech industry, really, its best purpose is in the service of the physical economy. And, uh, you know, they need to watch out. They should not look down their noses at the folks at the Port of Longview who are shipping. uh, But what do you say to people who say that is not a good enough reason to have blood on your hands? Uh, Well, rhetoric like blood on your hands is just childish. Um, the, The tech industry, like the government, serves and helps make more efficient the physical economy of our country. So let's not have the uh, tail wag the dog here. Uh, and and there's no one has blood on their hands. And, and rhetoric like that is just ridiculous. Um, but all public policy is a balance of interests. And it isn't right that a handful of policymakers who represent one narrow slice of the greater population of a country or a state uh, feel uh, that they can make uh, policy pronouncements for everyone with no check or balance. We're a system designed to have checks and balances. And, And this gets to a point we probably should talk about. The nature of our law in this state, which has centralized policymaking and decision-making intensely 
in the executive branch, particularly in the office of the governor, during times of declared emergencies. Now, some of that's appropriate. The governor is the, the chief executive of the state and is there to make uh, decisions that need to be made quickly and we hope well. But the system, the, the, the legal framework that we've created over the, a number of decades, it didn't happen instantly in this state, has so centralized decision-making in one office during times of declared emergency that we are bound, as we've seen with COVID, to have uh, problems, to have flaws, to have overreach and imperfection. And, and I think, yet the purpose of that, my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, is to provide what you described earlier, that sort of nimbleness to be able to, to, to respond quickly, effectively, but also efficiently to a, a public emergency. And that's the intent. It has not been the result uh, this time around. And I think we've got to, when, when, when we do get back to normal and in the longer term uh, in Olympia, our state capital, we need to... Uh, revisit how we structure the decision-making process during a declared emergency. I think there needs to be more of a check and balance system. We cannot entrust the executive branch, any one person, to make so many decisions that affect the economy and the culture of our place. Uh, we just can't. There has to be more of a legislative check on the executive branch's actions in this, this kind of situation. And, uh, that gets to some simple mechanical changes. Right now, uh, the section of the Washington law, uh, or the chapter is RCW 43, that controls the governor's actions during a declared emergency, uh, needs to be revised. Uh, some of the controversy we've had in the state involves, does the governor need to check in with the legislature every 30 days to extend policy made during a declared emergency. And the that RCW 43 is unclear. Some elements of what the governor does under that body of law are subject to the 30-day check-in requirement with the legislature. Some, according to the governor anyway, are not and can just be made with, in perpetuity, potentially. Uh, that was not, in my opinion, the spirit of the RCW 43, it was meant to, to preserve the checks and balances. So that section of law needs to be edited and cleared up and clarified that the governor must check in with the legislature. And the existing 30-day time limit uh, requiring that check-in probably shouldn't be 30 days. It probably should be 10 or 14 days. Because, the, the, the as you mentioned, the, the purpose of that section of the Washington law is to allow the governor to move quickly, move effectively in the immediate aftermath of some sort of disaster. Uh, and the, the legislators who wrote that law, I believe, had in mind an earthquake, a tsunami, you know, a Mount St. Helens volcanic explosion, something more of a natural disaster type wherein the, the, the effect can be mapped very quickly and... and response can be made very quickly uh, and uh, and you know where you are within a few days. Uh, this kind of event, the COVID outbreak, is becoming and, and was destined always to become more of a chronic problem. 
Right, a, a longer-term uh, management process. And you can't centralize decision-making in any one person's uh, chair in dealing with a chronic problem. It, as many of the best uh, epidemiologists have said, it's very likely that what COVID is going to end up being is a kind of seasonal outbreak, a seasonal phenomenon. And we will see it go away for a while and then come back. Uh, and if that's the case, uh, to your earlier question, the new normal is just going to have to adjust for a sort of chronic, ongoing uh, viral infection. And well, Let's talk about that, though, for a minute. If, if that's, quote-unquote, the new normal, and getting back to sort of the fraying of the social fabric or the, the folks in... It, it sort of reminds me, I mean, people were so... Uh, incredulous after the 2016 presidential election and how did we get so fractured and and what did the Russians do and bots and so on to to turn the Americans against one another and almost this sort of doggone it we're not going to let that happen again and yet here we are probably more than ever if you take a you know a, a poll of social media about I, I see people at each other's throats over differing uh perspectives on this. And again, it kind of gets distilled down or grossly oversimplified as uh, people versus profits. How do we, how do you, in your eyes, do we get out of that uh, uh, equivalency or that equation? Well, we have to call truth to, to BS. We can't let people use that kind of rhetoric because it simply isn't true. I had a, one angry uh, leftist on one of my social media posts said, uh, I'm sick of all you, I'm sick of you, Walsh, I'm sick of your minions, and I don't know how we ever got so divisive. <laughs> I said, well, it might have been about the time you decided to call your neighbors minions, you know? Uh, you know, it, it, this is just childish rhetoric, and uh, uh, it is, in my opinion, uh, I mean, it's shared on both sides of the spectrum, uh, but it is more a left-wing phenomenon than a, than a conservative one. It is more the name calling, the moral superiority, the at least the the mask of moral superiority uh, is something of the left. And I think that you know this gets back to fundamental things, really. I mean, um, when when you when you believe when you believe that you know that political society is all. When you believe that politics and government are your God, you're going to react viciously to any question of the, the intent in politics or the effectiveness of government. Because, uh, you know, those are the greatest powers, you believe, in a, in a human life. And on the conservative side of the political spectrum, while we care about government and we care about politics, we tend to look at life as more balanced than that and including all kinds of values and all kinds of influences. And so we tend to be a little more philosophical about, about government and, and politics and don't tend not to take it our own, wrap our own identities so much into it. And uh, and I think that's why it's, that's one of the reasons. Uh, this boils down more simply said to a lot of people always joke. Well, conservatives, you know, aren't on social media mouthing off because 
they're at work. You know, <laughs> they're raising their kids. They've got other things to do. Uh, but there's truth in that. There really is. And, and I think that we have to, uh, we have to realize there's a, there's a lack of balance there. People on the political left tend to, it's what they've got. It's all they've got in many cases. And, uh, uh, so we have to be aware of that. We have to push back a little bit when it's appropriate, but to some degree, we just have to write it off to what it is, which is childish rhetoric. Um, no one wants you know, anyone to die a painful death of the COVID-19 uh, disease. And, uh, you know, but that said, COVID-19, while not influenza, is moving through the population in a way that influenza does. And while COVID is not exactly the same thing as the flu, it's a more dramatic, more potentially lethal thing, it shares many attributes with influenza. And it's a respiratory problem. You know, and, and to say this is, is science denying, well, that's upside down. It's science that will tell you that the, the COVID condition, the COVID disease, in many ways, it acts and looks like a, a very intense form of influenza. That doesn't mean it's an influenza virus. It's a different thing. But, but to say that there's you know, no similarity there, that's the anti-science argument. You know, the science of the thing is it is similar to influenza. Worse, but similar. One of the interesting, I don't know if it was in the essay in USA Today, uh, but it was a, a recently published essay that was making the point that um, rather than making this equivalency between profits versus people, that we make that type of actuary table decision tree all the time. It's not overt. It's not in everybody's face. But when we set a freeway speed limit, we decide on some acceptable risk to have a freeway go at 60 miles an hour as opposed to, because we can guarantee there are engineers, there are experts that could say if we lowered our uh, freeway speed limit to 15 miles an hour, your highway fatality rate would go down to near zero. It, it would dramatically improve. Correct. Or you could find maybe even a two mile an hour freeway speed limit that would guarantee a zero fatality rate on the highways. But the economic and lifestyle impacts that that would have is intolerable to us as a society. So we've, we've put experts in place who say, you know what? 75 is too fast or 95 is too fast. That's too high of a mortality rate or highway fatality. But 55, 60, and in some places uh, that doesn't have a high banked turn, maybe 40, you know. And, and so we have that going on elsewhere in our society. We just don't see it so overtly in such an acute way as we do right now with this. That, that's an excellent, excellent point. And, and we, we make those decisions every day in our own lives. Uh, where you buy a house or, or rent a house, where you, what kind of vehicle you choose to buy. Uh, whether to have a child or have another child. I mean, we make, we make risk decisions every day in our lives. And, and yet if someone moves just to the more erring on the side of caution than you, you are a, uh, a Cretan, science-denying, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, uh, dolt. How do you, how do you contend w with that? 
you know that that sort of perspective, like you said, moral high ground. Right, but it's the illusion of moral high ground. It's a mask. Um, what the people who use that inject that kind of rhetoric into a policy debate are doing is they're showing the emptiness of their own lives. You know, not everything, you know, is a moral issue, and 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 we need to use questions of moral judgment very carefully. I mean, there are issues in the public arena that are moral issues, but not every issue is a moral issue. And, and the, this, this misbegotten hunt for no risk, for zero risk, as I've said before, frankly, it's childish. It's immature. Life is risk. And good judgment in your life is often a matter of, of assessing risk. And what risks are you willing to take and which risks are you not willing to take? But that's an intensely personal choice. And to get some, you know, frankly, uh, cat lady on Facebook yelling at someone that there's blood on their hands or they're killing people or I hope that one of your family dies of COVID, this kind of rhetoric, it's just goofy. It's just silly. It doesn't help anyone do anything. Public policy is about balancing interests, and, and we hope that we balance interests well. And when we do, we provide the greatest common good to the greatest number of people. And what we have in this narrow, intense example with our, our response to COVID is a, a little laboratory experiment on balancing interests. And, you know, the risk that the risk that the governor runs with all this decision-making power concentrated in his position, the risk that he runs is losing the population, is losing the support of the population. I'm not just talking about votes at the ballot box here. I'm talking about the, we're talking about the social contract, basically. He runs the risk of losing the social contract and people just ignoring him completely and doing what they will. And I'm not sure our governor fully understands how at risk he is talking about risk of losing the people here. So what, what's your perspective on that relatively small right now segment of the population that is, um, well, that, that, that congregated on the steps of the Capitol uh, estimates Put it somewhere between one thousand and thirty-five hundred. Um, it was and, closer to thirty-five hundred. I was there. Okay, so th- there were a lot of people there not respecting social distancing, uh, you know, not taking precautions like wearing a mask. And if if that's something that we're going to be recommended to do, and yet there are people that are getting such, um, you know, quarantine fatigue. Sometimes it's been called uh, that they're they're going beyond just an acceptable risk assumption. They're going on to to full-on rebellion. Um, How do we manage that? How do we get those people back? Or how do we get those people to be invested and bought into, uh, you know, reasonable risk? Um, we We need to use the power of the executive more judiciously. Our governor has overreached. He's overstepped what, in my opinion, is the proper use of his executive authority. And what that uh, rally a couple of weeks ago at the Capitol in Olympia was, 
was uh, civil disobedience. It was a protest, although the the vibe of the place wasn't angry in the way that you typically think of a protest. It was very upbeat and happy, and it was civil disobedience. It was it was a, a a message to the governor that I don't think could be delivered in any other way that he was overreaching. And I think that message was delivered because since that event, uh, going on about 10 days ago now, um, we have seen the governor's office be more responsive. They have lifted their uh, imprecise, excessive ban on residential construction. They have lifted or planned, announced they will lift their closure of, of public parks and state parks. They are taking some steps which are in the better direction to, to refining and making more uh, narrowly focused the state policy in response to COVID. And I think, you know, they won't admit it because they can't politically, but I think that that big example, rally of civil disobedience, put in terms that, that no one, not even the governor, could confuse that he had overstepped. And, uh, and I think it was very effective. So there's a couple of things that, um, despite debates on science and and political spectrum, I have heard some, and and also agree with, have voiced some things that don't pass even the smell test of common sense. For instance, if we're going to go into lockdown and lockdown commercial and residential construction, um, we're going to exempt... public projects or we're going to accept government uh, government construction projects were allowed to go on as right. if the virus somehow would jump onto somebody's mucous membranes uh, in the private construction trades and if somebody's on a public project somehow they're immune and, and if we're just going by the science and and the, these great buzzwords that immediately give you some kind of moral high ground like evidence-based and and, and science-based uh, approaches uh, another one is that while you're going to lock down the ability to build houses and so on, somehow uh, real estate agents got flipped, I think, with two days turnaround. Correct. Um, they have a very active and, and some would say powerful um, association in, in our state. Um, and they got flipped back on in, the, in that for the last six weeks that, that my business has been closed, for instance, um, real estate agents have been running and gunning. So some of those decisions to me that get really... Uh, fist pounded on the table that this is all about science and will be driven by data, not dates, just don't pass a, a common sense, even if you're not, you know, a scientist or an epidemiologist. What's your take on that? Well, this is true. Uh, the governor claims the mantle of science, but throughout his career, his actual command of science, scientific method, scientific principles is weak to non-existent. Um, he is uh, an almost exclusively political creature, and his calculations are heavily, heavily political. Um, unfortunately, he's not alone in having basically hijacked the, the term science and terms like evidence-based. Um, one of the essential principles of the scientific method and of science is transparency. You show your math, you show your your methods in the laboratory experiments, 
and reproducibility. You share that information not uh, for any ethical reason. You share the information because the scientific method is about reproducibility. Someone needs to be able to take your work and reproduce it with the same results in their laboratory or their life or their farm or wherever you are. And what the governor has done here in his COVID response and has done previously in his, uh, his, his almost religious mission to spread the word of you know, global climate change is he never shows his work. He's very nonspecific. And he says that uh, you, you keyed on one of his uh, recent little turns of phrase that he's going to be driven by data, not dates. Well, show us the data, Mr. Governor. What are your metrics? What are your metrics for determining which industries will be closed and which ones will be open for business? He hasn't done that. His plan, he, he launched a, a memo that he called a plan, uh, really isn't much of a plan. It's uh, some sort of very vague guidelines about how he would proceed to restart the economy of the state. And, uh, it, and it was almost uh, dropped uh, immediately because there was just no, it was useless as a public policy document. It didn't really say anything. Um, what we need to restart the state is a true plan, a, a public policy plan that has metrics, that is measurable uh, standards of performance, of success or not success, has, does have dates, hard schedules for when we expect different outcomes to have been realized or not realized. You know, it needs to be transparent and measurable. All of what this governor has done about opening up Washington again to, to life as somewhat normal is vague, unmeasurable, unreproducible, unscientific politics. And what I hope we get to as we get closer to this May 4th or May 5th uh, uh, threshold in time is some more detail from the governor. If he wants to extend elements of his lockdown plan, I want to see a, a real schedule for when this will be the, these elements will be released and rational metrics. At what, what point of transferability are we safe to reopen widely? At what point of new COVID-related deaths can we say we're past the peak and we're at a manageable place we can open up for business again? You know, he refuses to do this and has all the way along. And as you and I are speaking right now, we are on the downslope of the bell curve created by Farr's law on this, this outbreak. We are clearly on the downslope. Now, does that mean that we're totally safe and we can go open everything up immediately? No, it probably doesn't mean that. But we are on the downslope. And while we want to be mindful that occasionally there are echo bumps where as you loosen uh, the public uh, activity, uh, to people free, free up people to do what they will, there is a chance that some incident rates could bump back up. There is a chance even that mortality could bump back up. So we, we need to be mindful of that. But we are undeniably on the, the downslope of, the, of this outbreak. And this is the time 
where we need to articulate to each other in, in, in Olympia, but more importantly to the people of the state, a clear path to, to work and to, to life as we, we know it. And, and the governor, he still has the opportunity to come around on this, but at this point in time, he has failed to articulate that clear plan. What do you think happens independent of that differing perspectives or maybe partisan perspectives on how we do that? What do you think happens in four months? Economy slowly comes on, phase one, phase two, what have you. But you have people who have uh, a massive number of people who didn't pay their rent or deferred and their banks worked with them but deferred and now they have a uh, a seven thousand dollar balloon payment because they had a, a you know three or four months deferment of their mortgages, or or maybe a, a commercial you know a small business delayed their rent on their commercial um, lease. There 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 are predictions of you know that this is just the that first wave that comes in before a tsunami really hits, and then you know you get a series of bigger waves and bigger right. waves. Um, to me, that's bigger than than. Western Washington, it's bigger than than the left coast, um, nationwide. We as as a country, what do you see happening to that's not nihilistic or or, or um, you know dystopian? Well, I'm concerned, as everyone should be. Uh, we have some experience with this in the real world and how different sectors of our economy react, respond, recover from just standard recessions, and we know that that oftentimes. The, the 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 statistical and and econometric measure of a recession, which is done in the growth of the overall economy and to some degree with the uh, jobs employment numbers, can be measured uh, on on a fairly clear and predictable pattern. In a and it's, I'm just talking about a regular recession now, but there are certain industries that are either countercyclical to that recession or delayed, and there are lots of industries who don't feel the worst burn of a recession until six or 12 months after the recession has technically ended. And oftentimes these are uh, industries that either involve or, or somehow manage uh, real property and, and, and capital assets. They always seem to feel the burn a little bit later. Uh, I think we have, we're very much going to see something like this here. That this, this shutdown, economic shutdown, which has truly been national and even global, uh, is essentially uh, a man-made recession. We've made a recession. And I think you're going to see that some industries, even some that were considered essential and allowed to operate on, on a limited basis during the, the, the worst of the outbreak, haven't even really felt the pain yet of, of the shutdown. And, and will feel it in, in four months or six months or, or nine months. And the other thing to keep your eye on in the same vein is uh, government's uh, tax revenues. I mean, they're going to take a terrible hit. And, and in my world as a legislator, it, the next budget cycle is going to be brutal. And we may have to furlough government employees who've been who have not been furloughed so far. And in our state, government employees have, almost all of them have been paid throughout this whole process. And their pain may come in six months or a year when the tax bite takes effect and we have to start furloughing state workers. Um, and I'm 
sorry to say that there is some nihilism in the political circles in that some people simply believe that isn't going to happen or we'll find a, a magic money tree fix that will prevent that from happening. And there is no magic money tree fix. So I think that the history of recession cycles tells us that we have not felt the full effect economically of this shutdown. And we won't feel it probably until the fall or even the early part of the new year. And uh, I mean, let's talk again in six or seven months and we'll, we'll know a lot more of what the full effect here has been. Are you concerned about the economic impact of the uh, purported um, you know, waves of this virus that, that, you know, that they're talking about, we can have a second wave in the fall or, you know, as kind of, like you said earlier, kind of following the cycles of an influenza that in, in some cases, the second wave has been worse than the first. Sure. Uh, I am, but I think that our reaction will be more appropriate. I think that, you know, this, I think the, the last six weeks here in Washington and nationwide, it's not just Washington, has been a very expensive uh, lesson in how to react to this particular virus. And we haven't even paid the full tuition yet for the lesson that we've learned. But I think that as we accept the fact, if in fact it bears out, if it bears out and we accept the fact that COVID will be this kind of chronic seasonal effect where there will be not just a second wave, there may be a third, fourth, fifth wave, uh, we will act in a more well-reasoned, uh, with greater wisdom and with more specific target in how we deal with this, this virus and not make these broad sledgehammer pronouncements to shut entire economies down. So I think we will learn. I think we're already learning, and we will be more appropriate. But uh, but it'll have an ongoing effect, and it's not. We're not going to feel the full economic effect. Like I said, I my guess would be it'd be about six months. One last thing I'd like to kind of cover is um, there are different arguments or different disagreements about how much of this is political. Um, and like I said, I'm not interested in sort of the the wingnut theories about conspiracies as much as. Um, our governor has clearly had a contentious relationship with the president. Um, and uh, uh, when the presidential coronavirus task force is issued uh, kind of a timeline to relook at things, uh, April 30th, our, our governor came out and we're going to exceed that just by, you know, a weekend, basically, to May 4th. And, and some people said at that point, well, that's just sort of thumbing your nose at, at the federal level because you have this contentious personal uh, relationship with the president. Who knows? I don't know if that's true uh, or not. Um, but then when we see uh, ground zero, as I've called it, you know, we were, Washington was was the tip of the spear as far as the, the COVID-19 uh, uh, illnesses and deaths early on. And then we were surpassed, of course, in New York, Louisiana, big, big hot spots. And, and um, our looking at our media and our nation kind of had a love affair with uh, Governor Cuomo of uh, New York, and and he started doing his daily fireside chats. Basically, the governor of California, not to be outdone, um, started doing daily 
uh, after that, uh, the mayor of New York City, Bill de Blasio, started doing much more frequent. And it's sort of... With less good results, by the way. Right. He seemed to be... He's, he's uh, uh, described himself, I think, as being more of a scapegoat and Governor Cuomo being a, a, a savior or the nation's new uh, father or, or secret crush, they've also said in the media. But my point I'm getting to is that uh, what's undeniable is when you look at Gavin Newsom, Bill de Blasio... Jay Inslee, Andrew Cuomo, those are four of the heavy hitters predicted to have presidential ambitions. Well, Inslee, obviously, in 2020, and Bill de Blasio as well, but four years from now. And you have these fellows jockeying for national airtime, and Cuomo by far, you know, rising to the top like the cream. Um, how much of, of that lays into or plays into... Uh, on a national level, uh, policy. It might play into, I want to be on TV, I'm going to do press conferences daily, but but how much do you think that that plays into, if any, in, in policy decisions? It does some. It doesn't really control policy, but it does some. I mean, what you're describing are, you know, sort of retail politics. And in each of those cases, the individual players have to go to their strengths. I mean, Governor Cuomo of New York is good at talking. He's good at communicating. He does it in a straightforward way, which sounds like he's not BSing anybody. He is able to convey both a, kind of a hard-nosed common sense with a more emotional, softer sure. uh, comprehension, understanding, sympathy. And, uh, you know, he has, he has skills this way. Uh, Governor Jay Inslee of Washington does not have those skills. And he uh, really struggles in a lot of his press conferences. He he tends to uh, talk uh, in a very roundabout way that may be effective in some circles, but many people, uh, it strikes them as being sort of a, a BSer and not a truth teller. And I don't think he's trying to be misleading. I think he's trying to tell the, the truth as he sees it and, and articulate his his position, I just think he's not good at it. He doesn't have the skills that a Cuomo has. Uh, doesn't have the skills that a Gavin Newsom in California has. Uh, de Blasio, the mayor of New York you mentioned, is probably more like Inslee. Just lacks those skills. Now, they may have other skills, and clearly do. And they've been successful in politics. But, but that fireside chat, that communicating, conveying both common sense and sympathy uh, you know, that's a tough balance to carry off, and some can do it and some can't. I'm less interested in the kind of marquee players and how they've done this uh, than I am in the uh, groups, the kind of think tanks, the foundations, the legal advocacy groups that are using the COVID outbreak to push their agenda items that they've been pushing from before the COVID outbreak. Here in Washington, we had a case uh, just recently to the state Supreme Court in which a very, very troubling organization called Columbia Legal Services, which is a far left-wing radical group uh, that believes in depopulating prisons. One of their key issues is they want to empty prisons. And they've been pushing this, frankly, screwy idea for, for years. Well, they used COVID as an excuse, and they, they uh, filed this uh, lawsuit uh, that was immediately rushed up to the state Supreme Court to basically evacuate 
what would have been uh, half or more of the entire state prison population. This was a case that would made some national headlines because it had the potential, not necessarily for sure, but had the potential of releasing the Green River Killer. That is correct. That is correct. And and my emphasis here is this this agenda that Columbia Legal Services pushes, this isn't new. It had nothing, you know, it's not new to COVID in any way. They were just using COVID as the excuse to say that, that the state would have to depopulate the prisons, release prisoners. Now, in its thankfully, the state Supreme Court, which doesn't often come to the right conclusion, came to the right conclusion that this was not appropriate uh, to this time in this place. And the, it was a somewhat technical decision that there were flaws in how the Columbia Legal Services had made its argument. Nevertheless, they, they, they rejected that argument. They said, no, we're not, we're not going to depopulate the prisons. And, and, uh, and I, uh, as critical as I am of our state Supreme Court, the current chief justice, a woman by the name of Deborah Stevens, while a woman of the left, undeniably, in my opinion, is actually a sometimes fair judge. And she will occasionally, and has in the past, written some opinions that show good sense and, and kind of a legal... Uh, impartiality. And she did that in this case and rejected Columbia Legal Services' uh, really silly lawsuit. Um, and, and you see some some other similar going on. Very recently, uh, the uh, Transit Writers Union, which is a very left-wing, again, a very radical left-wing group out of the Seattle area, uh, pushing uh, uh, the issues that have nothing to do with riding transit, as their name implies. They push a very broad left-wing agenda. Uh, uh, is now uh, putting out op-eds and press pieces and media uh, bits about how the COVID virus uh, means the state needs to have a state income tax. And this is just screwy. It's just goofball. There's no good policy in this. It's an old kind of uh, socialist, social democrat type argument that this organization, the Transit Writers Union, they've been pushing this for years. And uh, it has well, nothing... You said earlier, you know, never the, the famous quote, never miss the opportunity to exploit a good, a good crisis. Right. And that's what they're doing. So I'm... Uh, I'm less interested in looking at the likes of Cuomo, Inslee, Newsom, because those are individual politicians. A lot of what they do and how they react have to do with their personal skill sets. If you watch these organizations, there's less personal skill involved here. This is just ideology and political uh, grandstanding in many cases. So that's what I'm more concerned about. What Andrew Cuomo does with this uh, that's going to come and go. But I'm more concerned about Columbia Legal Services and the Transit Writers Union. These are bad actors in our state pushing bad policy in the clothes of the kind of moral superiority we've talked about, of caring about COVID. They don't care about COVID. They're pushing a bunch of stale old left-wing politics and using COVID as an excuse. Well, when the governor of Washington uh, responded to the Supreme Court decision, he said that we as a state don't necessarily have a requirement to, uh, requ to, to provide absolute certainty of freedom from the virus or you know, absolute s uh, security that you won't uh, catch the virus because whether you're in jail or whether you're out of jail, you have a risk of, of catching the virus. I thought that was a very common sense response on his part to say, we don't have a responsibility to give you a 100% guarantee. Um, he needs to apply that standard to more uh, more policy points. Well, and and then and yet then we also have the the counterpoint to that is that 
uh, I believe we are now uh, in the state of Washington releasing, uh, is it 1,100? Yeah, the, the, the governor is releasing some prisoners in the state prison system. That is a separate thing from the lawsuit that Columbia Legal right, right. Center filed. So the governor had, was before and is continuing separate of that lawsuit to release a smaller number. As you say, it was approximately 1,100 uh, felons from state prisons. And uh, that was done uh, because of a previous... Uh, state Supreme Court um, memo document that they had suggested to the governor that he needed to take some precautions uh, about managing the spread in prisons. Uh, frankly, all of that, I think, is blarney. Uh, I, the, the only real interest I have is giving the staffs, the corrections officers, at least a modest level of protection from, from exposure to the virus. I'm much more concerned about those corrections officers than I am about the prisoners. And uh, if we need to release a few, and the argument of, of, of Inslee's was, uh, well, th these are, we're releasing people who are up to be released soon anyway, so it's not a, it's not a radical departure from our current probation plans. Uh, I don't agree with that argument, but I, I would be willing to entertain it if you could show me that that helps manage the risk that the corrections officers face. To my mind, the constituency I care about are the corrections officers. The prisoners, uh, you know, we have to make sure that they're not uh, receiving cruel and unusual punishment as our Constitution calls for. But I'm less concerned about their uh, comfort than I am about the, the health and safety of the corrections officers. Well, this is where I'm a little bit less of a liberal guy myself because of the ultimate, in a discussion the other day, the ultimate guarantee uh, for that is if you think the prisons are a higher risk to contract coronavirus, then maybe if you didn't do the behaviors that lead to you being incarcerated, that's the ultimate guarantee that you're going to be at a lower risk of catching the coronavirus. Likewise, if you don't want to eat prison food and uh, live almost constantly with indoor air and the health impacts of those uh, decisions, then again, not engaging in the behavior that leads to you being incarcerated. That's the ultimate guarantee for your long-term health and longevity. If you can't do the time, don't do the crime. There you go. All right. Well, hey, I want to thank you for sitting in with us today. Uh, again, we've had Representative Jim Walsh uh, of Washington State uh, District again. 19th, District 19th. 19th. Mighty 19th. The fighting 19th, <laughs> we call it. All right. Thanks very much. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to The David Ross Show. Please give us a like or a share and subscribe to the podcast if you want to keep up with the latest episodes as we start to kick things into high gear. And as always, stay safe, wash your hands, and don't touch your face. <laughs>